0: Last week, we considered the call of Samuel. And today, on this, the third Sunday after the Epiphany, we will continue meditating upon this theme of calling. And the propers are hardly subtle in putting this theme forward. In the collect of the day, we ask God the Father for the grace to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation. In the Old Testament lesson, Jonah was called to go to Nineveh and preach to the people there the impending doom that was coming upon them on account of their sins. In the epistle, Paul emphasizes the call of all Christians in light of the brevity of this present age to seek first the kingdom of God. That nothing, not even family, is more important than the Christian vocation of knowing and pleasing the Lord. And then in the Gospel, which we just heard, our Lord calls four of the twelve to leave their earthly vocation, literal fishing, to take up their heavenly one, fishing for men. And you'll notice there is For example, a marked contrast between the response of Jonah to his call and the response of the disciples to theirs. Simon, later known as Peter, and Andrew are fishing. Jesus calls them and the text says they immediately left their nets and followed him. James and John are doing maintenance, working the family business. Jesus calls them, and they just up and leave to follow him. The disciples responded to the call of Christ with zeal and immediacy. Jonah, not so much. And by not so much, I mean he did quite the opposite. Now I gave you some homework last week, and this week's assignment is to read the book of Jonah. It's only four chapters, and it's great. It's a great book, and if you have small children, the story of Jonah is one of the best Bible stories to act out. It's a lot of fun. You can make the couch into a boat and then throw them on a bed of pillows and throw Jonah overboard. Uh, But if you're using a children's uh, Bible, you know, just beware of the story of Jonah sort of being sanitized or domesticated. I read one and the, the way the story ended was like, And Jonah understood that God loves everyone. It's like, did he though? Right? We're going to get to the ending of the book. At the beginning of today's reading, scripture says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Well, what happened the first time? Jonah said, no. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against their wickedness. And Jonah refused. He ran from God both metaphorically and literally. He got on a boat and went in the opposite direction, away from Menephah, away from the city to which God called him, and towards Tarshish. Say that 10 times fast. But when God calls us, his call is irrevocable. He keeps pursuing Jonah. Scripture says that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And in order to calm the storm, to save the ship and the people upon it, Jonah is thrown overboard. He's then swallowed by a great fish and is in its belly for three days and three nights. Jonah, if you know the story, cries out to God for salvation and is vomited up on the shore. It is at this point that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again for a second time. And this time he answers the call. He obeys, though even at this point, his obedience is hardly enthusiastic. Jonah goes and proclaims the word of the Lord to Nineveh. He tells them that in 40 days they're going to be destroyed. And this was the response of the Ninevites. Nineveh being a huge city by ancient standards. Over 120,000 people. Enormous for this time. And this was their response. Which we heard the people of God The people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. The king of Nineveh puts out a decree saying this. He says, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn, relent, and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? The text continues, then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Huge city turns to the Lord. Jonah's like an ancient Billy Graham or something. And Jonah was so excited and so happy that the Ninevites said yes to Jesus. Just three days of preaching and over 120,000 people come to the Lord. Well, actually, none of that is true. If you know the story, Jonah's ticked, he's irate. Listen to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is his response to the success of his ministry. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I knew you were going to do this, Lord. Knew that you were going to forgive them. Knew that you were going to save them. As an aside, uh, both in the academy and in the streets, people for years have talked about how mean and malicious and mercurial and capricious God is in the Old Testament. Now, my experience has been that most of the people who purport such things have never seriously read either testament. In any case, if the stereotype of the so-called Old Testament God was true, then Jonah would have happily gone to Nineveh because he wanted to watch them burn. He wanted to see them be judged and destroyed. But it's the opposite. It's because he knew the heart and character of God, that God desireth not the death of the sinner, that he fled to Tarshish. As you can see, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He despised the people there, and not without good reason. Jonah didn't want them to be saved. He got mad, and he wanted to die when God didn't destroy them. He didn't exactly have a zeal for evangelism, and he's probably the only preacher in history that didn't want people to listen to him. Neither Jonah nor his ministry were perfect or ideal, but he answered the call. The second time he said yes, and God used him mightily. Through the ministry of Jonah, the most unlikely of converts are made, an entire city is spared, and over 120,000 people, along with their cattle, are saved. The definitive beginning of the Anglican tradition is, in one way, Jonah-esque. St. Gregory the Great, a late 6th, early 7th century monk and eventual bishop of Rome, had a heart to see England converted to Christianity. This is not to say that there were no Christians there at all, for we know uh, from the writings of Tertullian that there were Christians there as early as the 2nd century. In 596, St. Gregory chose a monk named Augustine to lead a missionary effort from Rome to England. And this is Augustine of Canterbury, who's named after Augustine of Hippo. He chooses this monk as a missionary to go from Rome to England. And it doesn't seem... Looking at the historical record that St. Augustine of Canterbury, as we now call him, was all that excited about leaving his position as prior of a monastery in Rome in order to evangelize the English. But he went because he was a man of obedience. A call from his bishop was a call from God. However, on the way to England, Augustine hears some gossip He hears stories that the people in the land to which he was going were barbarians and savages. This frightens him, naturally, so much that he suspends the missions trip. (laughs) He turns around and he goes back to Rome. But St. Gregory wouldn't allow him to quit. He tells him to take heart and sends him Back out. I'm not going to do this. Yeah, I think you are. So he didn't volunteer, but he was voluntold. <laughs> Augustine and company first landed in Kent, the dominion of King Ethelbert, whose wife, in the providence of God, happened to be a Christian. Thus, there was, upon arrival, this openness to and even support for their missionary efforts. Instead of savagery, they found that this foreign land was ripe for a harvest of souls. Within weeks of their arrival, they're baptizing converts. In 597, the very next year after he was sent, Augustine was consecrated as bishop, the first archbishop of Canterbury. And on Christmas Day of that year, it is reported that he baptized over 10,000 people. His ministry lasted only seven seven years. He died in 604. Nevertheless, his ministry marks the definitive beginning of the conversion of England to Christ, and he is rightly hailed as the apostle to the English. And though he certainly had a better attitude than Jonah, still Augustine of Canterbury was not, at least in the beginning, particularly enthusiastic about his call. He was at times... Afraid, yet he answered the call, and God used him mightily. And we who are now in the Anglican tradition are, at least in part, the fruit of his obedience. Jonah wasn't perfect. Augustine wasn't perfect. The disciples were not perfect in the way that they answered the call. Yes, they answered it immediately, but also imperfectly. You read the Gospels, many times where they're clueless, faithless, prideful, cowardly. But what Jonah, Augustine, and the disciples have in common is that they answered the call and the af- affirmative. They said yes. And their lives and ministries bear witness to the truth, to this truth, that God uses imperfect people and their imperfect obedience to accomplish his perfect will. To me, it would be more discouraging if everyone in Scripture, if everyone in church history were a bunch of goody-two-shoes, a bunch of nerds, the person who sits on the front row and reminds the teacher at the end of class, hey, we had a test today. You haven't given us the test. That would be discouraging. Why? Because none of us are perfect. All of us, each one of us, even your priests, are stumbling and bumbling down the road that leads to life. And we just have to keep saying yes. And when we start saying no, we have to repent and turn around and keep climbing in the power of the Spirit to be the people that God has made and redeemed us to be. God uses imperfect people and their imperfect obedience to accomplish his perfect will. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And the reality is, is that while God is straightening us out, conforming us to the image of his son by the power of the Holy Spirit, he uses us amidst that process to straighten the world out. Our transformation, our own transformation by the gospel, is concurrent with us being used to transform others by the same. Said simply, God doesn't wait till we are perfect to use us as agents of perfection in the world. Also, these biblical and historical anecdotes served to show that when God calls us and we resist that calling or flat out refuse it, the call is not revoked. God, in love, continues to call us, repro- reproving, rebuking, correcting, in hopes that we will surrender. God continues to work on his children, even if they fail to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. He keeps prodding, he keeps calling. We've talked about this a lot, it seems like recently, that every member of Christ's church has a calling, a vocation, that's what the word vocation means, calling. A ministry, you have a place to thrive, in the one mystical body of our Lord. But above that, we all have a shared call, which is the highest call, which is call to union with God. Our primary vocation, our primary calling is salvation. The various vocations of the members of the church are downstream, as it were, from the vocation, from the one hope of your calling, as St. Paul writes in Ephesians, which is again, union with God. Our call, the highest call, is to ascend the hill of the Lord. Our call, first and foremost, is, as St. Paul writes in Philippians, to know Christ And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means we might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And this, not his call to be an apostle, is the high calling, the upward call of which St. Paul speaks to know Christ. Thus we answer, in the affirmative, our varied and particular calls by saying yes to our primary calling. The call of the Twelve was first and foremost a call unto Jesus himself. And union with him was the impetus for their mission. Our Lord said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There are many members, many gifts, many callings, all of which are answered through pursuit of and surrender to the upward call to union with Jesus Christ, our Lord, whom with the Father and the Holy Ghost, one God, be all honor and glory, world without end.